If you Google nonprofit financial wellness, you'll find a laundry list of resources on things like nonprofit accounting, financial statements, and financial literacy programs for the public. So what's missing from this list? Well, any reference to the financial wellness of nonprofit employees themselves. Ironically, while nonprofit leaders are working to secure long-term organizational financial stability for the organization itself, and in some cases even providing financial literacy programs to the community, the employees who tirelessly serve their organization's respective missions every day are falling behind in many cases on securing their own long-term financial well-being. Hi everyone, welcome to Bernstein Insights. This is Inspired Investing, where we inform and educate organizations and individuals who strive to invest purposefully with and for a mission. I'm Claire Gola, head of Bernstein's Endowment and Foundation Advisory Services, and today we're gonna share some clips from a recent event, your 403B plan, Financial Wellness as a Retention Tool, which was hosted by Bernstein and our partner, the Back Office Cooperative. Our panel featured insights from Stacey Austin, ERISA attorney at Wang Austin, and our very own Daryl Rogers, a defined contribution expert here at Bernstein. They spoke in front of an audience of executive and board leaders of nonprofits. To start off, Daryl provided some working definitions of retirement plans to set the stage for the day's discussion. Thank you, Claire. Broadly speaking, the retirement landscape is categorized in two main lanes, defined benefit and defined contribution. The way to think about this, it all comes down to responsibility. So defined benefits are your traditional plans that teachers, military veterans, firemen, for example, have access to. So the specific amount of money that they will be paid once they retire based upon their years of service and their salary history. Defined contribution, the responsibility shifts to everyone sitting in this room for your own retirement, right? You set aside a a set amount of money or percentage of your income for retirement. Now, there's many different types of defined contribution plans and today's conversation will center more so around the 403B space. So you have profit sharing plans. So you have a for-profit company, they share some of the profits with their employees, pretty self-explanatory. You also have the traditional 401K plans where you're able to sock away money pre-tax for your retirement. 403B plans, the way to think about that is they are the equivalent of a 401k, more so for governmental, religious, or non-for-profit institutions. Money purchase plans, rarely see those. Traditionally, we see them here at Bernstein with doctors' practices, for example. So that's the space we're talking about. Daryl then turned the discussion to the concept of a fiduciary, at which time Stacy explained the duties of a fiduciary, particularly with respect to nonprofit organizations. If you are not a governmental entity, then you and you offer any of these plans, you or someone to whom you've delegated this responsibility is a fiduciary. So um, you guys, I would assume, are familiar with ERISA. Is anyone here not familiar with ERISA? Okay. Um, so as you know, ERISA is the statute that, one of the statutes that governs employee benefit retirement programs. And it very specifically um, imports, uh, imparts fiduciary responsibility on someone or some entity to be responsible for the assets that are held in these plants. So if there's no one that has been named as a fiduciary, um, then the employer is generally the fiduciary of the plan. And when someone is a fiduciary, that means that 
when they are making decisions with respect to the administration of the plan or with respect to the assets of the plan, they have to act in the best interest of the plan and the plan participants and beneficiaries. Um, there's a process within ERISA where this responsibility can be delegated. So um, that's where you'll see perhaps benefit committees or other persons or entities who are seen as fiduciaries. The plan itself may name a fiduciary in the plan, but whoever the fiduciary is, that individual or entity is responsible for acting in the best interests of the plan participants and protecting the assets of the plan. Um, and <clears throat> not only can one be a fiduciary if they're named in the plan, but also if they act as a fiduciary. So someone may not even um, be named in the plan or be delegated responsibility, but let's say they have the authority to make decisions with respect to the plan. Like they can, um, they get to decide where to invest the assets, or they get to decide how to interpret certain terms of the plan, or they get to decide who is entitled to benefits and who's not entitled to benefits. That individual or that entity would be considered effectively a de facto fiduciary and would still be expected to act in the best interest of plan participants and beneficiaries. And I'll say this, for nonprofits especially, so the fiduciary responsibility rests essentially with the board to start, right? So the board is the governing body of the uh, organization is deemed the fiduciary of the, um, of the plan, right? That board can delegate that fiduciary responsibility, all, most of it or some of it, to other entities. So the board may delegate to a committee of the board or to an employee committee of the organization um, certain oversight responsibility with respect to the plan. Muddying the waters, fiduciaries today are faced with a different environment. Stacy goes on to explain why the landscape for fiduciaries has changed over time. I'll give you a little bit of a history lesson. Um, so most nonprofits sponsor 403B plans, right? It wasn't until recently that 401K plans became an option for most um, tax-exempt organizations. So prior to 2007, 403B plans were typically hands-off, right? So the IRS, so there's two entities that govern um, retirement plans for the most part, the Department of Labor and the IRS, right? And so um, the Department of Labor said, um, had ERISA, and if you had a plan that was subject to ERISA, it had to be provided pursuant to a written plan document. So the 403B plan, the way most 403B plans were structured prior to 2007 is you would have individual annuity contracts, and employees could enroll in these contracts and contribute to these contracts. Uh, there, the employers didn't really need to be very much involved in that process, and most weren't. And by staying out of that process, they were able to avoid ERISA and being subject to ERISA. So these plans were not subject to ERISA at all. Um, and so that's what um, a lot of nonprofits did. On the governmental side, governmental entities are exempt from ERISA just as a matter of course. So uh, they structure their 403B plans the same way, but they could be a little bit more involved in that process and still avoid ERISA. So 2007 came along and the IRS issued, the Department of Treasury issued regulations governing 403B plans saying these 403B plans need to be subject to a written plan document. So I don't know if anyone was in this space back in 2009 where you, know, you had to get your 403B plan documents in place to satisfy um, the Department of Treasury regulations. But through that process, it came to light that a lot of 
plans that were being offered by nonprofits technically were subject to ERISA, but they were being administered kind of like they weren't. Um, and so there's been a lot more attention and scrutiny on these 403B plans because before 2007, no one was really paying attention to them because of the way that they were administered, generally speaking. So I would say the past 10 years has been spent basically kind of catching up in many ways um, to the kind of rigorous uh, regulatory landscape that 401k plans have had for many decades. So where we are now is a lot of organizations are now facing more attention um, by the Department of Labor because their plans are subject to ERISA and they are fiduciaries. And I don't know if you've seen in the news, uh, for example, tax-exempt uh, universities have been sued recently for fees, um, excess fees under their 403B plans, uh, which if your plan is charging too much to the participants, then that is considered a breach of fiduciary duty because it's not in the best interest of plan participants to charge them a lot to participate in the plan. So there's a lot more attention in this space than there was. The discussion then transitioned to fees, where Daryl explained some best practices for assessing what's appropriate to pay. Every three years, as a kind of the rule of thumb, you should be reviewing your fees. Um, every other year, we're the largest independent research firm on Wall Street, and every other year, we conduct an annual survey of plan sponsors, $1 million to $500 million in assets under management. Okay? And based upon that survey, one of the things we uncovered is about 40% of those respondents were using first-generation mutual funds in their investment lineup. So you think about fees have come down dramatically, and a great example is Vanguard, is the cheap, low-cost, passive. In other words, you are not actively managing and making buy and sell decisions. You're just saying, I wanna own everything, and they've become a low-cost provider. You contrast that with an opportunity we uncovered where they are literally using an investment lineup from the 1980s. So if anybody can remember what the fees were in the 1980s, you're talking north of 2% maybe for a mutual fund, uh, which is extremely expensive, but it's all relative to what? It, and so price, when you're talking about what you're paying, relative to what the benchmark is. Shifting gears, Daryl describes his three-pillar framework for a retirement plan. The plan sponsor or the nonprofit itself, the participant or the investor, and the investments themselves. There's three pillars that you should be aware of, because this is a very complex ecosystem. So I try to deconstruct it and make it as simple as possible. So the three pillars are simply the plan sponsor, right, the em employer, the plan participant or the employee, and the investments. Right? Those are the three pillars. Now, within the plan sponsor's umbrella, you have two kind of functions. You've got your administration, and then you've got your fiduciary responsibility. So administration would be something like you're actually responsible for choosing your service providers, for one, like record keepers or third party administrators. And then you're also, you know, you outsource that decision. You're also responsible from an admin perspective from creating and filing the form 5500, which is with the IRS. And then the third leg might be fee disclosures, for example. So what most organizations tend to do is they outsource these functions to the other two major players, like a record keeper, and the record keeper is a firm like Accensus or Empower, for example. And what they do is they are the plumbing of the operations. So they're responsible for account balances, transactions, um, fee disclosures, for example, uh, payroll. Um, they get involved in payroll. The um, 
third-party administrator is responsible for 5500s in compliance testing. Okay, so that's kind of the first leg of the stool. Um, when we get to the second leg, you're talking about the employee uh, or the plan participant. What you want to remember here is it's all about the education and the engagement. Education and engagement is critical to improving outcomes for your employees, including retention and, turn and reducing turnover. Um, and so one of the questions when I sit down with either prospective client or even existing client, when I'm talking about education, we want to check in and make sure that how do your employees even know if they're on track to retire, right? I mean, how are you even answering that question? What is your education strategy for improving outcomes for your employees? Right? That's when you partner with somebody like Bernstein and we can help you craft that type of education. Um, or I'm sitting down one-on-one -on -one and you're getting the same access to advice that our high net worth clients are giving as well. Because at the end of the day, that's what helps move the needle. And the third um, leg or the third area are the investments, right? Because that's what gets you from point A to the promised land. And so when you think about the investments, it's critical to understand that not all investments are equal. You could have the lowest cost strategy in terms of Vanguard, for example. You could have the best performance, but if your employees are not investing, then you have, in my opinion, failed at your responsibility for managing your people. At the center of all of this is engagement. If participants are not properly engaged, they won't have a strong sense of financial well-being. What we have found is you can give them all the options you want, but if they're not getting the one-on-one -on -one engagement, odds are they're not meeting their, doing what's necessary to secure their future. And what we're really talking about here is financial wellness. And financial wellness, just for operational definitions, we're talking about budgeting, financing a home, these things that we deal with on a daily basis that we just don't even think about because that's what is on employees' minds when they're sitting at their computer and they're worried about paying off their student loans, right? And they're not gonna be engaged fully like you want them engaged. Or they're gonna leave and take a job that pays more money as better benefit packages because they don't feel like their retirement is secure. And I'm going to add to that, there's kind of two different analyses that are being done, right? There's the fiduciary analysis, like, am I satisfying my fiduciary duties in making this decision? And then there's the practical analyses of, are we achieving our goals that we set for offering this plan by doing this? And they not, aren't necessarily the same analysis, right? So on the fiduciary side, it's all about process, right? Like, were you prudent in your decision whatever it is. So it's not so much did we make a good decision, it was did we evaluate the facts before us and come to the best decision we could come to based on the facts, based on our participant population, right? So some populations, for example, are better equipped to uh, manage certain types of investments and others are better equipped to manage different types of investments. Some do better with more, some do better with less. Like knowing your employee population and what works best for them. So I remember being in a room where someone said, um, oh, well, we give this lineup to all of our clients. And I was like, well, that's not, actually not a good thing because if your clients are different, they need different types of lineups, right? Um, so you're looking for what is in the best interest of your employees and your plan participants, right? And then on the flip side, or you know, alongside, depending, is 
what will get them to invest, what will get them to contribute, right? You know, because at the end of the day, like you said, you could go through the process and have this great thing, and if nobody's using it, then you've kind of wasted your time. So um, you got to look at sort of both things in order to kind of come to the ideal uh, goal. So look, different types of organizations will have to do different things to create successful engagement. Daryl discusses one engagement that led to better outcomes for a particular national organization. A large client have uh, multiple locations, Detroit, Chicago, Orlando, Charlotte. I literally hopped on a plane and we conducted a session where we opened it up for the employees of the firm. They signed up for one-on-one -on -one engagements and I'm talking, it ran the spectrum from tears to like, oh my God, no one has ever sat down and had this conversation with me and it's the first time I went to have this conversation. Um, to helping people pay down a loan that they didn't even know they had, for example, um, and or to just confirming that somebody has a budget and they're actually on track. So we helped increase their participation from the, call it the low 60s to the mid 70s just with that type of engagement with the one on one. So it's literally me listening to my clients and asking what's most important to them. I think for the not-for-profit world, I serve on a number of boards as well. I like to apply this ethos of mission first, people always, right? So I think it's more of having this mindset of, I'm gonna do what's ever possible to accomplish the mission with the not-for-profit, but at the same time, take care of my employees. So using this client example, it's just showing up, what do they say, showing up is 80% of success, um, showing up and sitting down one-on-one, -on -one. But the second part of that engagement is meeting in a room full of people and walking them through what the actual investments are as a group, the performance, the fees they're paying, so they're educated on, and the benefits of why you need to be starting now. And we actually quantify that with numbers. We take an example like a cup of coffee, for example. A cup of coffee, is, let's say it's $10. You save $10 a week for 10 years, and you compound that at a 6% annual growth rate, that's $7,000 in 10 years, right? So it's these little things on the margin that start to add up over time. So a lot of people think of it as this big um, destination in the future, but at the end of the day, it's these little things you do on a daily basis, whether it's a cup of coffee, maybe it's cutting your Spotify subscription, maybe it's sharing your Netflix subscription with your spouse instead of having two separate ones. Um, you can start to make a major difference over time. $46 a week over 40 years is $400,000 compounded at a 6% growth rate. That can be generational type of change. And that's assuming a $40,000 annual salary. That is doable. That's a 6% contribution rate. That is doable for somebody working for a not-for-profit organization, but it's the education component that people need to understand. And they, you, when you see that light bulb go off on their eyes and they see that, oh my God, this is what my dad's been telling me about it before. <laughs> and now I finally get it. My mom is a single mother and she's like, I've been doing it, putting, putting away $15, $20 a month and here's how it's affecting my paycheck. And I didn't even realize this is generational wealth. This is more money than I could have ever imagined. And then you talk about risks, right? They need to understand the risk. Because what we do on a daily basis is solve for longevity risk. People are living longer. But you can't forget about the technical requirements of fiduciary duty and administrative roles. 
Stacy adds an example of an organization she worked with that had some extremely rough challenges and how they powered through. My role kind of comes to play in two different regards. You know, the first is general advising in terms of questions that my clients have, you know, advising them on from, you know, start hiring a vendors. And I'll say, don't underestimate the services agreement and your vendor agreements, because that's the place where you can maximize the amount of education you get from them for your employees, right? So that document with all that little writing, um, you know, that read it, have your attorney read it, have someone read it, but in the back, you can really, you know, ask for, you know, that type of engagement support for your employees. So that's a good place to um, make that happen. Um, but then I also get brought in when things go awry. And I would say most of my fiduciary advising, fortunately, is not in that category, right? So. Um, there's a fiduciary aspect of investment decisions, making sure that you're making good decisions for the participants when it comes to selecting investments and making the, and deciding which investments to offer. But there are also other elements of the fiduciary responsibility, which is reporting, disclosure, hiring service providers, um, administering the plan, uh, deciding claims. All of those things are also part of the fiduciary uh, responsibility of the organization. And, you know, I would say, especially with 403B plans, the administration piece is so key. And a lot of the issues that I find are with respect to failures in administration. So for example, I have a client right now who tax exempt organization that doesn't have election forms for their employees reflecting what they elected. And so also they forgot to file their 5500s and do an audit. To sum it all up, Daryl and Stacy provide some critical questions that nonprofit decision makers should be asking today with regard to their plans. So I'll kind of hit some of the pillars. I think in terms of fees, it's an easy and obvious one. The most, I think, pressing question is when was the last time you benchmarked your fees um, over the last three years? So that's, that's an easy one. Um, when was the last time uh, your provider talked to you about different um, functions or provisions of the plan that you can enact, whether it's a match, um, for example, change in the investment lineup, um, service that they're offering, et cetera, because that is one of the key concerns on the fiduciary's minds that we deal with, right? So I think those are the two most pressing are the plan provisions, like what's new and interesting out there and then benchmarking your fee, because those are the two ones that I think we consistently see tend to be on people's minds. I would say mine's sort of <clears throat> a blanket question, which is who is responsible for what, right? So who are the fiduciaries with respect to the plans? Um, knowing who, those, who, that, who they are and who they should be, right? Because um, one thing I didn't mention is that you typically want your fiduciaries to be the people who are actually making decisions with respect to the plan, right? So if you have your board, who is the fiduciary because it's never actually delegated that responsibility to another entity, but they're not really the ones making the decisions. It's really you know another group of employees or another committee. You actually want that committee to be the fiduciary, not necessarily the board. So fiduciary responsibility isn't something that you want to house at the top 
unless it's actually being um, administered at the top. You want it with the people who are doing it. And then the second is who is responsible for all of the other pieces of the plan when you're offering the plan, right? Because there are so many players in this process, right? There's record keeper, third party administrator, um, you know, HR, payroll, accounting, legal, investment advisor, all of these different entities kind of working together and understanding who's responsible for what um, is probably one of the best things, I think, um, an organization can do to make sure that their plan is running smoothly. So I, I think the, uh, if I might add to that, Stacey, go to your provider and just ask them for the fiduciary checklist, or there's a, usually a booklet or something they produce. And on this one, particular one from Empower on page 33, they have an appendix literally with the checklist of about 35 action items or things you should be aware of. All the TPAs, for the most part, should be producing something like this. So what action items can we take away from all of this? Daryl summed it up with advice that nonprofits should give to all of their plan participants. There's three things I want you to walk out of here with, with your folks that you, if you're involved, you're not-for-profit. One, the most critical thing is to actually uh, get started. I, I mean, is to actually sign up for your plan. Right? The next most critical thing is to actually pick your investment lineup. And then the third thing is to over time, increase your contribution rate. And a good target or rule of thumb is 10 to 15% of your actual salary. And on that note, that's all we have time for today. Thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please see the link to our blog, Mission First, People Always, in this episode's description. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please go to the iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts to subscribe and rate us. Also, please email us with your thoughts, questions, and feedback to insights at Bernstein.com and be sure to find us on Twitter at BernsteinPWM. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.